1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Alex Golub, and I'll be the host of the channel today. And we're talking to David Verrill about his new book, The Lost Black Scholar, Resurrecting and Davis in American Social Thought. So David, welcome to the show. I'm excited to talk about the book. I wonder if you could begin a little bit with a bit of your biography and telling me how you um, got to be a historian and how you got interested in and Davis. How does uh, one uh, get interested in this topic. What brought you to it?
0: Sure. Hi, Alex, and you know, thanks for hosting this podcast. I'm excited to be here and to talk about the book. So, a little bit about me. You know, I grew up in in a sort of suburb of Chicago. Went to kind of liberal arts school in Illinois, and kind of ever since then, I've been studying history and social science and and education. Um, I I'm, I got certified to teach high school. Briefly taught high school in Illinois before going on to graduate school. Um, and so I ended up doing my doctoral work at University of Colorado. That's where I got my PhD, uh, four years ago in, uh, 2015. And I studied, uh, American intellectual history, especially 20th century stuff with a a focus on race, social science, and, um, kind of social movements like the civil rights movement. And so it was, is it trying to find a project, um, that that's where I kind of how I stumbled across allison davis and he turned out to be this really rich subject that i could use to piece together all these different
1: kind of stories about 20th century uh, american intellectual life i guess how did you stumble on him was the did you read him in a class or nope this was me just trying to find a project and um
0: you know i kind of i'm glad this is an anthropology kind of blog because that is kind of where i started here i was fascinated by some of these larger-than-life figures like Franz Boas and his students, you know, Margaret Mead, Ruth Benedict, all these people, who are these kind of larger-than-life figures who challenged scientific racism and were kind of public intellectuals, though. They didn't just do this kind of laboratory research. They were out in the world, and they reached a popular audience and had a real impact. And so it was in trying to find... A way to say something new about this story of sort of challenging scientific racism that i stumbled across davis eventually um especially reading about kind of culture and personality that strand of the the discipline um that's where i came across his name and there wasn't much about him i kind of had to piece things together but i knew that okay this is an african-american one of the only people involved in that culture and personality school who was black And so that kind of got my interest. And the more I started looking, I found little bits and snippets of him in different places. And finally, I realized, you know, there's a story here. And if I can just kind of piece them all together. And the more I kind of pulled at that thread, the more it became this really fascinating look on much of uh, 20th century American intellectual life.
1: That's great. It's really interesting to think about Davis as a person who had um, a really amazing life. we'll we'll talk about a little bit more but also seeing him as being a, a point of intersection through which a whole bunch of interesting things that were happening in the 20th century were going on. Yeah, definitely. So maybe we should just um, lay out for uh, listeners who aren't familiar, who was Allison Davis? And um, can you just tell me very briefly his biography and what some of his main works or accomplishments were? Sure. So he, was, he lived from
0: 1902 to 1983, um, and he's most famous for his work kind of in the second quarter of the 20th century. So kind of 1930s and 40s, especially. Um, he became a pioneering, um, anthropologist and professor of education, um, who wrote some pioneering studies, such as Deep South, a kind of case study, um, of the uh, life in Mississippi, a Mississippi town. And, you know, had a real influence on not only social science, but also kind of larger public life in different ways. Um, And, you know, personally, he became the first African-American appointed full-time to a predominantly white university, which was the University of Chicago in 1942, Um, also the first to get tenure at such an institution um, at Chicago in 1947. Um, And from there, he was a professor of education. He did some pioneering work in abolishing kind of culturally biased intelligence tests. So he really used his theoretical work and research to have a larger public impact in different ways. And so that's what he's most known for ultimately.
1: Yeah, you know, he spent some time um, at Yale. He spent some time at Chicago. I think you said he spent some time abroad at the London School of Economics as well. So it sounds like he really had a chance to meet a wide variety of people. And, um, synthesize a lot of different interests definitely and also harvard where he actually got a
0: master's in english literature first in 1925 and then did master's work there again in 1931 in anthropology so he was he was all over and was shaped by some of the leading intellectual giants at the time
1: so maybe we should step through that um His uh, childhood was spent um, on the East Coast, and then he ended up at Harvard. And that was also – he also was involved in the New Negro Renaissance as well. Can you tell us a little bit about his early days and his early involvements there?
0: Yeah. Would would you like me to go to the early life or go more to the kind of Renaissance period?
1: Um. Uh, well, uh, you uh, wrote the book. What do you think would be the most interesting thing for people to understand about him? I, I can just say a few
0: words about his early life. Um, and so he grew up in kind of near Washington, D.C., um, as part of a kind of middle class black family who did pretty well until Woodrow Wilson was a, uh, elected to presidency. And then he appointed a bunch of segregationists who ultimately fired Davis's father. Well, actually just demoted him. He was, was, a, was a clerk at the government printing office. And so it's kind of caused his family to spiral into poverty a bit. And so Davis was part of this sort of fledgling black, um, well-to-do class, but also you know, deeply struggling. And so that kind of seared in him the ideas of you know racism and how they intersect with class and things that became predominant concerns for him. Um, and so with that kind of backdrop, yeah, you end up getting an elite education, um, going to Williams College to get his undergrad, and then to Harvard to get a master's in English literature. Um, and like a lot of black intellectuals of the time, in the 1920s, right, this was the era of the New Negro Renaissance, or Harlem Renaissance, as it's called. And, you know, what this was about, is readers probably have some idea, you know, it grew out of the the great migration of African-Americans, you know, from the south to northern cities like Chicago and Detroit and New York in a period of heightened racism, both scientifically and, you know, in terms of Congress, you know, the rise of the second Ku Klux Klan, anti-immigrant legislation in Congress. And so the Harlem Renaissance, New Negro Renaissance, was really a way to kind of push back against that and to represent black people in a way that it humanized them um, and captured some of the dynamism of black life in in the urban north, especially. And so Davis was very much a part of this and kind of carved out his early voice within that period. Um, And so just to say say a bit more about what that was like or what those intellectual struggles were over. um, So eventually you had these kind of different schools within the Renaissance. You have an kind of older generation, people like W.E.B. Du Bois, Elaine Locke, who were all about using art as kind of race propaganda. Let's depict the whitest and, you know, best and brightest black people as a clear refutation of popular imagery of black people as savage and backward and predators. But then you have a younger group of, 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 uh, black intellectuals who are trying to push back against that and so let's not just portray the, the whitest black people you know, to, to appeal to these white audiences. Let's actually portray the lowdown black people, ordinary black people, you know, and let's portray them in ways that humanize them. And so that's what
1: Davis was trying to do uh, throughout his, his, uh, his, his work. It seems like there's a certain amount of um, not just racial politics, but class politics there as well. Um, You know, as an anthropologist, I always think of uh, Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston as being the people who were interested in emphasizing sort of um, the achievements and the incredible sophistication of folk culture and popular culture, Um, whereas Du Bois and Locke had a sort of, uh, you can tell me if I'm wrong, because I don't really know that much about this, but more of a civilizational project of refinement and um, Bildung in that German sense. Um, uh, So where did Davis fit in on that? On the one hand, he went to Harvard and he came from a middle-class family, but on the other hand, he had this strong experience of downward mobility that, as you say, kind of aligned him uh, more with working class and poor people.
0: Yeah, you know, it's it's a great question of where these people fit in. And they, they kind of, he exposes the complexities of race and class in America. You know, he was himself overwhelmingly caucasian his family um you know his mother and his two siblings were basically they looked totally white he was the darkest member of the family um and so that himself gave him a different kind of experience navigating who he was within this system um and class wise yeah he he was highly educated and that it made him part of this world that was very out of touch with many african americans in the country and so I think he was someone who really was always, always committed to using his privilege, class or color, whatever it might be, to try to, you know, ally with the darkest, the most despised of his race and see them as his real kind of partner in trying to, uh, uh, you know, fight race and classism in, uh, in the U.S. And so I think his, his, liter- his literary writings were all about that. Now, he would portray ordinary working-class Black people, you know, washerwomen, you know, fishermen, and, and kind of capture their fortitude and resilience and say, these are the real qualities of African Americans as a people, their irony, their strength. Um, and so let's focus on that rather than just, you know, more privileged Black people as Du boys and those folk kind of wanted to do. Um, but also he was critical of some of the younger generation of Black people like Langston Hughes, who sometimes focused so much on Black life in these bars and in these kind of spaces, in urban spaces that were being patronized by white people who kind of wanted to revitalize American civilization by you know, touching upon this Black primitivism uh, kind of thing. But Davis was very critical of that, the whole politics behind it, and artists who supported that. So he was, he took a different path, very much on sort of ordinary Black people especially in the South.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, in his own writing, at least as far as I can tell, he doesn't really you know, embrace the vernacular the way that Hurston does. So it does seem like he kind of occupies a position that complicates the usual dichotomies that I think maybe non-experts like me might be familiar with. You, you know, um, one of the things you mentioned was the, the virtues of working class and poor black people. Uh, one of the terms in your book is uh, is, I think, Negro Stoicism. That was a central idea for him. Can you tell me a little bit about what that is?
0: yeah, that's really just a way to kind of uh, express a little bit about what I was just saying he He believed that this was the kind of the most authentic version of what of the black experience. It was kind of a stoic response to deep oppression and hardship, you know going back you know hundreds of years through slavery up through the rise of Jim Crow and other hardships. And so the real black experience for Davis was a stoical resistance to that, uh, uh, an insistence on kind of surviving, persevering, just by kind of going day day by day through your through your kind of life and pushing back against that. And so his art was trying to capture that that fortitude, that stoicism. And I think that's kind of how he wanted to see himself too, um, against his family's own struggles. You know he. He wanted to see himself as stoic, as a way to kind of endure a really
1: difficult sort of existence as a, a black American in Jim Crow America. So that was sort of his um, his sort of broader outlook and early involvement. How did he go from participating in the New Negro Renaissance to becoming a social anthropologist? That seems like a, a world away.
0: Yeah, it was... Uh, a big shift in a way, he, you know, while he was doing that, uh, participating in the Renaissance, he was a professor at Hampton Institute in Virginia, an all black college, mainly vocational oriented, um, from 1925 to 1931. But then you have the outbreak of the Great Depression, um, and Davis really decides to retool himself and say he turns to anthropology as a, a new way to combat scientific racism. He saw some progressive trends in the field um, from people like Boaz and others. He said, okay, let me contribute my talents to this new field, and maybe that would give me a way to have a more immediate impact on African Americans, which for some people like him and others of his generation, during the Depression, there was this real sense of a need and urgency to do more. And I think his decision partly grew out of that, a way to be more relevant to African-American life. And so he started reading anthropology on his own and became aware of progressive trends in it. And so he made this fateful decision, okay, I'm going to give up my somewhat comfortable career and go back to school and enter Harvard, study sociology or study anthropology there, then go to London School of Economics, study it there with people like uh, Malinowski. and so that set him on this very different path. Um, but the one thing I will say about that, as different as it seems, I try to make the point in, in the book that for, for Davis and many of his figures like him, it, it actually wasn't so different. You know, all of his literature was about humanizing black people. And now he's really just using a different terrain, that of empirical science to do the same thing, to study the low down black people. Um, but just using a different language and to communicating with a different audience, essentially.
1: You know, it, it's such an interesting thing. On the one hand, there are people in anthropology, sociology, who've tried to do that, but he didn't take the path that, as an American, you might expect, which would be Boaz or um, working with Melville Herskovitz or something like that. He ended up doing a kind of uh, social anthropology that we might be more familiar with as being part of the British tradition or just being straight up sociology and not anthropology at all. So can you tell me a little bit about some of the people who got him interested in that and um, uh, how that became part of his intellectual apparatus and how he began some of his early research projects?
0: Yeah, that, that part really is fascinating. I think has a lot to kind of speak maybe, you know, two anthropologists who were aware of these kind of differences within the field between social and cultural anthropology. And you're absolutely right that the social type focused more on social structure rather than kind of culture and values was much more a British approach. And from what I can tell for Davis, I think he, he took this path because he was initially intending to become an expert in Africa um, and, you know, as teaching at Hampton Institute, he became very aware that, you know, there wasn't really much being taught to African-Americans about Africa. And so he saw himself as maybe I could become an expert on the continent um, and make that a way to kind of make African-Americans aware of themselves and their identity, this transnational identity. And so, you know, British people, um, the London School of Economics had much more ties to this. Uh, initially, he was planning on, and he did spend a little bit of time in Germany, right as it was becoming Nazi Germany, um, studying with people like Dietrich Westerman, who he was hoping to get the funds to sponsor fieldwork in Africa during that period. But ultimately, that fell through. And so really just having known Lloyd Warner, who was one of these Americanists who was schooled in the social anthropological tradition he got this offer to come back to the United States in 1933 and do field work in Natchez, Mississippi, rather than Africa. And he got, you know, funds to do that. And so this kind of put him then on the trajectory of becoming what many would see as just a sociologist, because he's studying not foreign cultures. Um, he's studying a contemporary Western civilization. And so even though he has these social anthropological kind of training,
1: he's doing something that really bridges sociology and social anthropology. You know, Warner is such an interesting figure. He, you know, traveled all around the world, became very, very prominent, and um, somehow we have almost no memory of him today. But it seems like he was really encouraging to um, Davis and I think maybe other scholars of color. Is that, is that true? I know certainly in Davis's case, that was
0: absolutely true. I mean, he was a crucial figure in Davis's career. You know, in a time when there's no way for a black scholar to reach a mainstream white audience or scientific public without some sort of backing by a white scholar, that was what Warner did for Davis. And they became friends too. I mean, they, um, not just at Harvard and, you know, communicating during the Deep South project, but Warner became a professor at the University of Chicago from the mid-30s to the 1950s. And so when Davis was there, too, you know, he got his Ph.D. under him there. And then they were colleagues together there. And always he was a supportive force, instrumental in Davis getting winning grants like from the Roosevelt
1: Foundation and others. So absolutely, he was a a crucial kind of uh, figure for, for Davis. And you mentioned Malinowski, too. Did Davis have much to do with him at the LSE? I, I seem to remember that um, Davis had a sort of uh, like a biological anthropology influence uh, in England. Is that is that correct?
0: Yeah. Um, it's, I, I don't think he ever had a real much, ex- too much experience with Malinowski. I mean, he communicated with him ahead of time. And that's ultimately why he went there. Malinowski was interested in having him come there. But, you know, when he was there, which is only for, you know, a semester or two, um, I don't know that they ever had close contact. But he was certainly influenced by his sort of uh, functional functionalism. Um, but he ended up getting a little bit closer with a figure named uh, Lancelot Hogben, who was, as you say, a kind of social biologist. And so Davis's first article within social science was actually – Directly related to the working with Hogben, who became a, a kind of international figure in revising biological determinism and showing the role of, you know, social influences on shaping, you know, things like genetic makeup and, and group differences. And so Davis was influenced by him and always inspired by him, um, for sure, by Hogben. And that was probably his biggest influence. But what ended up being a rather brief time at the London School of Economics, actually?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because he did end up doing a lot of stuff that today in anthropology we'd call biocultural, studying the influence of psychology and culture and, you know, the biological bases of race. But he's, he's not at all a four-field anthropologist in the um, cultural anthropology mode. So it's just... Uh, for, for an American like me, it's just so interesting to see that mix. Uh, you know the other thing that I think is really interesting about Davis is that book, Deep South, which is just um everyone listening to this, I think should should take a look at it. It's absolutely amazing. and um the one thing that is most amazing is that he could have written it that the, the fieldwork for that book just sounds absolutely bonkers. can you can you tell us the story of how that book got written?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's yeah it's fascinating and horrifying all at once. It, you know, this was this amazing project that it spans you know, really over two years of field work by no less than five people, actually. So it was Allison Davis and his wife, Elizabeth Stubbs Davis, who was actually a really a great anthropologist in her own right, studied at Radcliffe when Davis was at Harvard studied alongside Allison at London School of Economics as well. So she's has this training and she brings to bear her skills to this Deep South project. They team up with a white couple named Mary and Burley Gardner, who are charged with kind of studying the white half of Natchez, Mississippi, which so that's what this is, a community study of Natchez, which is this kind of mid-sized town, uh, kind of a commercial hub in Mississippi along the Mississippi River, and they also enlist a young Saint Clair Drake um, to do some of the field work as well. Um, He, you know, Drake becomes a a pioneering anthropologist uh, and also kind of a Black Studies scholar. Later, getting appointed to Stanford and becoming a first major figure. So these five people descend upon Natchez. First, just the two couples lived there from 1933 to 1935, the heart of the Great Depression. And especially for the Davises, right? It's almost it's it's hard to imagine, you know, them making deciding to do this. Let's go live in, you know, the deep south, right? Right at a time when we're aware of the rise of the the clan and all these sort of uh, outrages against black people, the Scottsboro boys and, and these kind of various lynchings. And they decide to go live put themselves in this space for the cause of science, right? To create a, a field work study. It's Rather remarkable, and it truly was dangerous. You know, they're getting word of lynchings happening in neighboring areas as they're around there. You know, Allison stashed a gun in his glove box in case something got out of control, which could happen for, you know, no reason at all, right? An educated black person in the Deep South was an embodiment of a threat to the social order. So it was deeply uncomfortable and if not dangerous the whole time, for sure.
1: You know, there's a story at some point in your book about how he had to stop um, mailing back notes to his dissertation supervisor, I guess not his dissertation supervisor, but the team leader, because people were suspicious that a black man was using the post office. I, can, I could not believe that. Yeah,
0: they were, you know, they were being, the, the police kept tabs on them, you know, because so they basically, what the Jim Crow ordered dictated was that Allison could not be a, an equal colleague to the gardeners um, because they were white and he was black. So he had to ritually enact his subordination, which meant that he couldn't just go to the the gardeners' home where they were staying. Right, That would be to meet as colleagues. So they actually had to go meet kind of surreptitiously, drive to a, a location along the road away from town and discuss their findings that way. And then, yes, as you say, um, they were pretty aware that these white postal clerks might be reading their mail or what they're doing, and they're always worried that they might seize their research. And so, yeah, they were very hesitant to to use the mail service too much, as that might become suspicious and raise some flags about what they were doing. So, yeah, everything from just that, right, The, the basics of trying to communicate with your your team leaders and your colleagues was so obstructed by this, so it it really was remarkable that the kind of gumption it took to persist through that system.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, anthropologists today are always so uh, wary about getting permission from the um, community they're working with and making sure that they produce ethnography that the community finds appropriate. And uh, this fieldwork situation kind of has. The power dynamic that we think of as paradigmatic in anthropology is totally turned on its head. And it's amazing when you read Deep South, um, you know, it's it's an interesting mix of qualitative and quantitative approaches, which we should talk a little bit about. But it also just has these quotes from white people about what they think about black people in racial politics that are, uh, shall we say, refreshingly honest and extremely blunt. And it's it's just amazing to me, I guess, you know, as someone who lives in Honolulu, which is, a, you know, not on the mainland and a, a more racially diverse place, it's just amazing to me that um, you could do field work in that kind of situation if you were African-American. It, you know, one of the key terms that emerges from that work is the concept of caste. Uh, so could you tell me a little bit about, you know, encountering like a caste system and what what is the relationship for Davis and Warner between like caste? class and, and race. We hear those words thrown about a lot. What, what do they mean to him? How did he theorize them? Yeah. So
0: Davis and Warner are the ones who kind of coined that term and thought that the caste was the best way to describe the racial order in the South, in the deep South. And they did this, you know, very much borrowing at the time from writers who were discussing India and saying, no, look, if we look at the If we compare, which is always what social anthropology was about, let's compare these different cultures together. Let's develop a scientific formula that will enable us to do that comparison. And they said, look, a lot of the same things are in place here. It's a structural oppression, and it's not just political, economic, it's social, it's sexual, right? It's a dividing line. Black and white people can't get married, and there's such a huge stigma to any black and white people who decide to um, have sex or try to get together, which they did nonetheless. But that was the ultimate sort of taboo of the system. And it was a way to keep the races apart to enshrine white supremacy ultimately. And not coincidentally, a way to divide working class whites and blacks from one another and to kind of shore up this kind of ruling planter class in the South. And so, you know, the book really helped laid out some of that in a kind of, uh, really effective way.
1: Yeah. It's, it's so interesting today. We talk a lot about structural injustice, structural violence, structural racism. It seems like Davis was on this topic, you know, more than half a century ago.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's what makes the book still read refreshingly, like, you know, relevant. Um, And, you know, I'm an intellectual historian, so I was interested in, yeah, what what was the kind of trajectory of that? You know, you would think that at the time, right, us looking at it would say, wow, this book should have been celebrated, right, for laying out so clearly how race and, you know, class intersected to kind of create this uh, oppressive order. But actually, what's interesting is that at the time, many black scholars and liberal whites didn't, they really hated this concept of caste because they thought it meant that the racial order is so kind of locked in place that it's going to make efforts to promote change. It's going to kind of undermine them. And in fact, that's what a bunch of kind of Southern, uh, more conservative writers were saying. People who are drawing from William Graham Sumner saying, you know, um, state ways can't change folk ways, right? This idea that you know, you can't do anything by government to change the South, the racial order, because it's so rooted in the culture of the place. And so they they like, those Southerners conservatives seized upon caste, but a kind of narrow reading of it, but saying, yeah, look, there's nothing we can do. We just have to let racial relations slowly work themselves out. And so many progressives actually were opposed to the caste dynamic that Davis and Warner laid out. And I think that that definitely contributed to it being a bit marginalized for a number of years, um, but the other thing i 'll say is that it was also marginalized because in the by World War two and after American culture, it became taboo to even talk about social stratification, class inequality, that became a sort of a dangerously communist red type of approach, and so davis 's entire work then on social stratification is being marginalized as people were wary to talk about that for not wanting to be slandered as communists or, or, and so forth. So it really wasn't until the 60s that you get a rejuvenation of that. And then maybe a looking back upon Deep South as, wow, newly
1: relevant. You know, it's funny, we don't think of Radcliffe Brown today when you read him in your um, theory courses as being relevant. But Davis and Warner were really the people who took structure functionalism and Turned it into an analysis of structural injustice. That's kind of crazy if you think about Radcliffe Brown's own predilections. It's quite an achievement, and I will just plug the book once more. You know, the thing about Deep South is that it was written quite a while ago when there was not as many books published, and many public libraries today will have it. You know, university libraries will have it, so it's actually pretty easy to get a hold of if people want to check it out. It's it's around, and I definitely think it deserves to be reread.
0: Yep, very much agree. I know that some, that continues to get read in sociology by graduate students and doctoral students, and so it still has that kind of a remarkably enduring life for a social science book, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, and it, it's, it's clearly written, too. I mean, it's not hard to get through at all, especially the, the chapters that are more ethnographic, um, which have a lot of verbatim quotation. They're very easy to assign to students or just to read if you're curious. So yeah, once again, we'll plug that book. Um, But, you know, on the one hand, that kind of work is taking a very structural perspective and social anthropology historically has been kind of antagonistic to the study of individuals or what's inside an individual's heart, Durkheim and other Scholars were interested in the social roles and the social structures, and not people's interiority. So often, British or British social anthropologists will criticize American cultural anthropologists for wanting to know what's in people's hearts instead of studying objective social structure. But but Davis then went on to do a whole set of projects around precisely that: what's in people's heads and hearts, and uh, how human personality is shaped. So, can you tell me a little bit about? How he got on to that topic and and what some of that work was about.
0: Yeah, I mean that's probably what also and why Davis and I hope the book reflects that is why he's such an interesting person to kind of follow, Um, because yeah, I mean he, so he had done this first rate work on social structure, laying it out, but this was a guy who never wanted to be pigeonholed into any kind of intellectual tract or theory. So for him, I think it was logical. Okay, look, I have a pretty good understanding of how race and class work as social systems. But what that can't tell me or doesn't do very a good job telling me is why are individuals within those same social structures have such different life outcomes and experiences? And so he wanted to kind of follow, out, follow through on that, I think, his own intellectual curiosity. And this became a, an easy thing for him to do when he, you know befriended um, John Dollard, who, you know, through Lloyd Warner, again, setting up some of these relationships, who was a Chicago school social sociologist and really social psychologist who, you know, got a job at Yale. And he met Davis when he was in the Deep South, and the two of them had shared interests in that region. And so Davis ultimately became a kind of colleague and even kind of student, of, in a way, of, of Dollard's at Yale. And Dollard helped to expose him to psychoanalysis, um, Freudian psychology, social psychology, which was really becoming a major force within American culture, especially you know 1930s into the 1940s, when you have all these emigre um, social scientists from Europe coming over, um, Eric Fromm, Karen Horney, these kinds of figures, and so Davis put himself at the center of this emerging school of social scientists. And they're known as culture and personality for wanting to connect the two. Let's connect social structure with psychology, which had been too focused on sort of just the individual without reference to the larger social structure. So let's, let's combine them both in tangible ways. And so Dollard and Davis ultimately did that, um, in in the late 1930s. They went back to, you know, they studied Natchez and New Orleans. And what they did was a series of case studies on a bunch of African-American youth. And they tried to just kind of humanize them, but also explain them, right, to really delve into how these aspects of their personality, sure, there's idiosyncratic components, but they're also very much directed by the race and class disparities in which they navigate. So let's understand individuals as part of this larger structure. You can't kind of separate the
1: two out. You you know, for um, cultural anthropologists, the term culture and personality often has a a bad reputation because we associate it with Jeffrey Gore and Ruth Benedict and Margaret Mead, who did a lot of good things in their lives, uh, at least Benedict and Mead. Um, But the culture and personality side was often seen as very simplistic, very, very essentializing, relying on almost racialized um, sort of modal personalities and, you know, claims that, that that communism was caused by how you swaddled children and that kind of thing. But it, it sounds like Davis avoided those pitfalls to produce something that was actually valuable. I just want to highlight that for listeners. His, his work is quite different from theirs.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I really, it was. He was kind of part of a different tradition than the one centered at Columbia with you know Ralph Linton and, and Mead and Benedict. His really was more this kind of Yale orientation, which is more about you know, was more social anthropological and social psychological. Um, you know, to be sure, you know this was experimenting with a way of co- combining these theories, which was not always pretty or you know, you know it didn't work out perfectly. You know, some of their Freudian interpretations in that book are, you know, I think now you might wince a little bit in some ways that they were kind of doing some of that. But what was different was because of really Davis's experiences with these black youths, right, and the subject matter of studying black youths in the Deep South, that his case studies, even if the social science and the the theoretical combinations weren't always, you know, perfectly convincing, he did manage to humanize these people who at the time, right, these were not subjects of social science very much. And if they were, it was merely in reductive ways and black people as problems, as delinquents. Um, And so he really humanized some of these figures and brought them into the mainstream kind of social science world in a way that was really very progressive, even if the theorizing wasn't always uh, so convincing.
1: So it was really humanizing, not objectifying.
0: Yeah, I would I would definitely make that argument. I and I would encourage authors too to check that book out. It's called Children of Bondage. It was sponsored by the kind of New Deal program, um, and group called the American Youth Council. And so it got some wide circulation at the time. And it really was the best of those culture and personality studies that came out of that American Youth Council. Um, but yeah, I encourage you to, to look at that and see how it's it's done. And I I do think that it's really quite impressive in lots of ways.
1: You talk a little bit in the book about um, arguments like uh, culture of poverty or damage theory. These are sort of different ways to theorize or understand what it's like to grow up in situations where you're at the bottom of this structural process that's so punishing. Can you talk a little bit about what Davis's claims were and how they're similar to or different from the kinds of claims, which today we might view with suspicion. Yeah,
0: that was culture of poverty. And what was the first one you said?
1: Oh, uh, like, I think you said something in your book about damaged theory, yeah, about uh, right. personalities right. being damaged. Yes, exactly. So, um, yeah, this rhetoric
0: of damage became a really big post-war phenomenon. And in fact, it's the kind of argumentation that undergirded the Supreme Court decision Brown v. Board of Education, where the NAACP drew from all this social science, some of the stuff that Davis was involved with, which it was kind of saying it's exposing the damage that segregation caused upon Black people as a way to win liberal support to show that this is unjust. This system of racism is unjust because of what it does to Black people, how it distorts them and their families. And, you know, that was successful in a way of getting the Supreme Court to you know, use that to kind of justify overturning segregation because it damaged uh, black people. But Davis, you know, despite the fact that his research was sort of appropriated in ways to kind of shore up that argumentation. In fact, as I kind of show in the book, he, it was really more about humanizing them. His own research didn't do a lot of the stigmatizing of black people that sometimes people misread it as doing. Um, And so I think that's important too in explaining why Davis is a lost black scholar. Um, The fact was by the 1960s and 70s, people did not want to, they looked so askance at that damaged literature, saying, look at this stuff, you're just penalizing the people who are being impoverished, right? That's against what you want to do with the civil rights movement, which is empower black people don't act like they're beyond the pale and just crippled in their own sort of you know problems. But actually, that was a misreading of Davis. And if people look back now, I think they, they'll see that Davis wasn't doing that. He was actually, he stood apart from many of his generation, though, the Kenneth Clarks and others who were so prominent in that kind of damaged literature. So that's another reason I think that Davis is worth a real serious look to, to kind of point to some more progressive trends that have been overlooked. Um, in the kind of haste to dismiss this mid twentieth century school,
1: um, people sort of felt that by saying that African American people who are subjects of structural violence have been radically disempowered, um, that 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 sort of ended up saying that they were disempowered or not capable or helpless or something like that. And in fact, he was just trying to demonstrate. What it was like to live like that, and how people found meaning in in extreme circumstances—something like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, that's part of the fun of studying this stuff is how history and different contexts changes. You know, what ideas become popular. You know, someone. You know, in a way, his portrait of structural race and classism is first rate. But you know, sometimes people don't want to focus on that. They want to focus on the change dynamics. They want to focus on what's possible, what where power lies within people. Um, And Davis was always open to that, Um, even though you can look at some of the work uh, from within its context as having different messages and and appeal of different ways in different times, I guess.
1: Yeah, different generations read work in different ways and with different sets of glasses. And so um, things that might be present to the author, you know, might not be relevant for contemporary audiences or they might read it one way and then the author could get Rehabilitated later on, so it's always worthwhile, I think, to try to understand these thinkers not on the basis of like just one book or one article, but in who they were as a whole person and what what the course of their whole life was like. I, th- I think that that's really important when we when we do this kind of work. Um, one thing I do want to talk about is uh, getting to his time in Chicago you talk about stoicism and the importance he felt of trying to continue through in the face of obstacles. And he ended up being a tenured professor at this very wealthy, very prestigious school. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about um, what his time was like at Chicago and um, some of the difficulties that he faced there? Again, there's some great stories in the book about, or maybe not great, but interesting stories, not not good stories, about the challenges that he faced even as a professor being um being in Hyde Park and and being at the University of Chicago.
0: Yeah, he faced the burdens of all sorts of kind of racial pioneers, you know. It's a very lonely and isolating process to be a pioneer. And so when he's in Chicago and he is, is becomes a faculty member, although first he was appointed only through a subsidy with from the Rosenwald Foundation. Chicago may not have taken him on if the foundation didn't agree to pay for You know, two thirds of his salary for the first three, and then five years of his term. So already, his was different, Um, and he enters a faculty which, you know, there were some bona fide racists on it. People like William Fieldberg Ogburn, Fielding Ogburn, um, a a southerner who was opposed to Davis's appointment, Um, and you know, these people who thought that this was you know, we shouldn't be forcing the issue by putting black people on these faculties. You know, we have Southern students. We don't want to upset them kind of mentality. And so indeed, for the first several years of Davis's time there, it was a kind of ritualized, you know, um, enactment of his subordination. He was excluded from the faculty quadrangle club, right, where faculty members regularly ate lunch. It wasn't until about 1947 or 8 where he was able to to enter that space on campus um and you know that's just the most blatant thing right i mean but racism is so much more sinister than that it's subtle things it's people questioning why you're there do you really deserve this appointment are you just there because you're black and and it's growing up in, as you said in hyde park where um you can't live right it's still segregated right there's still restrictive covenants in place and they're enforced in different ways you can't live by the other white professors in town um So all those things made life pretty difficult, um,
1: for sure. And he couldn't, you know, so I went to school at Chicago, so those chapters were very um, uh, personal for me because I I was familiar with the story. He could not live in Hyde Park. He had to move to Kenwood, is that right? That's the neighborhood that's just just north of Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago where the University of Chicago is located. Yeah, that's right. And one of the main people who um, he talked about in his time there was um robert redfield who uh was someone i knew his son when i was at chicago he registered me to vote actually when i was a graduate student um so redfield sort of seems like warner someone who is pretty supportive he's kind of kind of comes off as a, as a good guy am i am i wrong in thinking that do i have a pro redfield bias yeah i mean i think for davis
0: um Maybe more central actors for him were was Ralph Tyler, the kind of president or the, the head of the education department, Lloyd Warner as well. Um, but yeah, Redfield too. He, you know, was a colleague of Davis's. He became important in kind of su- playing up the, the successfulness of that appointment of this black scholar there, using that to testify in court cases leading up to Brown v. Board is like evidence of how segregation or desegregation actually works you know you can create these more effective integrated spaces um and yeah those there was a a real strong group of white scholars there who were deeply supportive of davis i think and they helped him navigate those spaces and davis became an intricate part of this very interdisciplinary environment and it was that kind of support from those white scholars that definitely i think Um, allowed him to endure some of these hardships in a way. It was important. That kind of thing remains important.
1: You know, I just want to ask you a couple more questions, Uh, even though we're coming up to the end of our time. I I can't help but first asking you about his work on intelligence testing, which was mostly done in this period. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about that work and, and what he did in it?
0: Yeah, in many ways, that could be seen as the most important work he did in terms of Promoting social change, actually on the ground, things changing. Um, what he did was he was the leader and took the leadership role in this interdisciplinary project to first prove um, that there are these major social class biases within intelligence tests. And it's worth noting that within American culture at this time, you know, intelligence tests saturated institutions from business to government to schools. As it was seen as a legitimate way to segregate people by ability and push them into certain tracks. And so Davis, you know, as a professor of education doing a lot with the schools, he led a, a study that showed how, look, we're not measuring innate intelligence of students. What we're doing is we're, we're measuring their social class privilege and affluence, right? And, and that's partly because the tests were very linguistic in nature. They measured what terms you knew They used analogies, things that were just foreign or language that was so foreign to lower class people of all races. But black people were, of course, disproportionately lower class, working class. So it was always relevant that way. And so they proved it. They proved the kind of biases within the tests. And then they tried to devise these kind of alternative, uh, not biased tests um, and push those. Um, but just briefly, they were less successful in kind of, um, promoting these alternative tests, but they were successful in promoting school districts all across the country from either revising the kind of outright class biases of these, of these tests, or even outright abolishing them as a, a useful diagnostic for sorting students into different places in school. So, real profound sort of influence. In the, in the 1950s, but also kind of laid the groundwork for later, bi- later critiques in the 60s and 70s. Yeah,
1: I mean, they're still around today, but the idea of taking an intelligence test at your business, that seems very foreign to me, but I guess it was widespread in the past.
0: Yeah, anything to kind of assess people's personalities, their traits, with the idea that this is useful information to help people, managers, administrators decide where people belong. And, you know, always done innocuously, but the very premise of the thing was um, um, problematic. So,
1: Okay. And, you know, pulling back a little bit from the writing from the book and Davis himself, I want to talk a little bit more about the writing of the book. You know, I noticed in the um, citations in the book, you cite conversations a lot. I think correct me if I'm wrong, but you you talked with Davis's children. I saw St. Clair Drake got mentioned a lot in the footnotes of the book. Can you tell me a little bit about how you wrote the book and how you worked with people who had known Davis and the writing of it?
0: Yeah. um, You know, so doing African-American history, it's important that you kind of got to find ways to get it source material that can really lay out what the figures as people were experiencing, because as we know, as historians, archives are inherently biased in terms of, you know, who has power, white men, um, affluent white men, these people, the archives represent disproportionately. So for to tell Davis's story, you know, I was able, of course, to use his voluminous published writings, which was so important in fleshing out his perspective, what he was trying to do. But to really get at who he was and to, you know, what he really thought behind the kind of objective tone in some of his work, you gotta ask, you gotta find to different sources. And so, as you say, I did, I interviewed both of his children, Allison S. Davis and Gordon Davis, both in their seventies today, who were, you know, really happy to help out. And they gave me some just crucial information about him. It opened up family archives that they kind of had which really allowed me to flesh him out in that first chapter. And yeah, St. Clair Drake, you know, Davis's student at Hampton, who became this pioneering figure, a Stanford professor, who by the 1970s did a lot of reflecting and writing, publishing about the kind of early anthropology that he and Davis were doing. And so those kind of sources, along with some, Correspondence between Davis and some his black friends like Horace Bond. That's where you get at a more kind of genuine feeling about what was Davis actually feeling and experiencing during some of these moments. So that's that was the way that I was able to kind of flesh out his perspective, and not just sort of his professional authorial voice within social science.
1: You know, I just realized when I asked you that question, Drake probably passed away sometime before you started doing research. Isn't that right?
0: Yeah, Drake was a, a major smoker and he died at um in nineteen eighty-five, so just two years after Davis. Yeah, so well well before this project. But but he did leave us a, a long record of published reflections and archival records too in his papers, The Schomburg um, to kind of speak to a lot of this stuff.
1: And for people in anthropology who are interested in following these genealogies, you know. Drake was one of the mentors of Faye Harrison, whose book, Decolonizing Anthropology, has become very, very prominent in the past couple of years. So Davis is really right on that genealogical line that connects Harrison and um, St. Clair Drake back to people like Warner and um, Sapir and uh, other people like that. So there, there are a lot of connections to be made there. Yeah, absolutely. And that book, I should say, Fay Harrison's book
0: and works have influenced me too. And so it's, you know, um, absolutely, that stuff has been essential in helping us to, as they say, decolonize social science, to to tell these stories, right, not just to highlight some different people's experiences, but hopefully to reshape the whole narrative of, when we talk about the fight against scientific racism, we can't just talk about the prominent white people like Franz Boas, who got institutionalized at places like Columbia. we got to talk about these Black people who often provided some of the research for those figures that bolstered their careers. And like Davis, rose to some prominence, but had been marginalized by collaborating with white people who got more of the credit for some of the work that they did. And so I'm hoping that centering Davis really unearths how all of these forces come together, what race can offer Um, how it it deepened Davis's vision, but it also kept him marginalized within the archives in different ways.
1: Mm. And if you don't mind my asking, you know, we're sitting here talking about uh, the racial politics of doing this kind of work. Uh, Listeners who cannot tell we're talking over the Internet. I can't see you. You know, I'm I'm white. I think maybe you are, too. Is that correct? Is that how you race yourself? That's correct. Yeah. Uh, so yes. so, what was it like doing research on a person uh, whose racial identity was different from your own, who spent time in the South? I think maybe you said you're from the North. You know, um, what kind of learning process did, did you go through in the course of writing the book? Or what were the things that you realized you had to be mindful of when you did it?
0: Yeah, I'm a white guy from kind of Chicago suburbs. Um, and so really the last 20 years of my life have been... Trying to educate myself, you know, kind of see beyond my own privileges a bit to kind of understand the diversity of experience in this country, how power works to amplify voices of people like mine and diminish those of others like Davis. Um, so for me, I really saw it as wow, what a great way to deepen my own understanding of race. Right? I mean, then this what better way than to study someone who lived it um, and studied it their entire life in the way that Allison Davis did. So. You know, I would encourage people to do that. Is it's educational, and you know, um, to jump into those people's perspectives. Um, and intellectuals are a great start because they're so educated and articulate and have this commitment to explaining things like that. Um, they can help us all understand what that experience is like. Um, and as we kind of mentioned before, it, it matters where you, you know, if you're really trying to recover this black perspective, which my book is is attempting to do. Um, you gotta do things like reach out to family members. You gotta look for those voices in spaces that aren't gonna be found in traditional archives, like presidential archives so much. You're gonna have to kind of get more creative. Um, but it, as long as you kind of take seriously that black perspective, seek it out in different ways, foreground it, then I think that as the capacity to, to kind of shift, um, the discipline in ways it needs to go. You know, black history needs to be and has become a central part of American history. It needs to become even more more so, I think. So.
1: Yeah. So you didn't feel like you were uh, doing something unethical by studying someone who was, who was not from your own kind of background. You felt like you had something that you could contribute when you did that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I like to think of it as, if, as historians, I mean you know, I'm a historian and, but anthropology do similar kinds of things. Um, look to study anyone in the past, you're, you're stepping into what they call, you know, history is a foreign country. They do things differently there. No matter who you study, this isn't you, you're not going to be able to just apply your own sensibilities to that person or subject. And so for me to study a black person, um, it's to apply the same kind of historical skills and, um, that you need to apply to any kind of historical subject. And as long as you do it by listening closely to Black perspectives, um, yeah, I think that we, need, we should be promoting um, everyone studying more of these people of color and their perspectives. Not, you know, and I can understand there's, if people are trying to capitalize it just to make money off it, or if they're trying to establish themselves as, you know, white figures, presiding over these departments where they're controlling the study of the black experience, like there become real problems in the power dynamics there. But if you're just doing a kind of for you know, uh, nonprofit book which doesn't make you any money and you know you're not kind of institutionalizing your control over the black experience, then I I think that's what we need more of, in fact. Everyone should look at these voices, study them and try to make sense of them. Not to become the the authority over them, but to promote interest in them, essentially.
1: Right. Institutionalizing your control over the black experience. That's a good way to put it. Um, yeah, it's, it's such an interesting topic. I feel like um, in some ways, this is really just the beginning of a broader conversation we could have about methodology and ethics, and the way in which these ideas that are so important now today have been Uh, present in the past and the way they get remixed and transformed. But I do want to let you go. I know I've taken up a lot of your time. Before we go, can you just tell me a little bit about what your next step is now that you've got this book down and out of the way? What are some of the current projects that you're working on?
0: Yes. so I've been doing a lot of work and writing already on this other figure who's a colleague of Davis's actually in the 1930s. He's a historian, black historian named Lawrence Reddick. And so he's doing similar work using history, though, that discipline as a way to kind of fight scientific racism. But he interests me in some of the ways that he was also different from Davis, who was more of a, a scholar by nature in every way. Um, whereas Lor- Lawrence Reddick was more routinely speaking to the larger public. He was a librarian, the, the curator at the Schomburg Library. He became a and activists by being a, becoming a close mentor to Martin Luther King. He was a founding member of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And so I, I think his career is also deeply important in, again, recovering this generation of black intellectuals, black scholars. Um, um, Reddick, too, was a, uh, an actual Ph.D. at the University of Chicago, which was really a dynamic space in the late 1930s, early 1940s for some of these leading black scholars. So I'm still seeing it as part of a mission to, to get to know those people more, recover what they were doing. And I think we find ways in which it speaks to the present still in ways that are rather remarkable.
1: That sounds so interesting. I look forward to reading it. So thank you for taking the time for uh, writing it. And thank you so much for joining us today on New Books in Anthropology. I really uh, appreciated you having, uh, having you on. And I hope that people take a look at books like Deep South, Children of Bondage and other works like Alison Davis and think about teaching them or sharing them more broadly. So thank you so much. Thank you, Alex. It's been a real pleasure.